Some may say we're at the crossroads in pharmacy at the moment, and what that means for us moving forward. What's our future like? Well, in this episode, I've got Morris Mizalowski, business futurist extraordinaire, and we explore what the world of pharmacy will look like in 2050 when our children live to 150 and they have seven careers and 14 jobs. You're going to love this one. Welcome to the Transformation Show, where successful pharmacy owners and technology partners help you to build a better 21st century pharmacy by embracing technology. Here is your host, Robert Starr. G'day everyone and welcome back to Transformation, the only dedicated podcast in the world where pharmacy and technology collide to bring you, the motivated pharmacy owner, all that you need to build your smarter, more successful 21st century business before it's too late. My name's Robert Starr, your host and guide on this fantastic journey of ours. And in Australian cricket terms, I'm raising the bat right now for episode number 50. Absolutely fantastic to get to this milestone. Never knew we'd get to it when I started this back almost a year ago. We're nearly up to our anniversary, and it was great to get some great feedback from you from last week as to what you'd like to see on the transformation anniversary, and certainly what was your favourite episode. It certainly looks like it's going to be a tie, I think, between episode number one, which was uh, my uh, monologue, I suppose, um, which was about why there's never been a better time for a pharmacy owner to embrace technology. And of course, if you've read Transformation, the book, that might sound very similar and look very similar to the first chapter of Transformation. In fact, it absolutely is. And also the uh, episode number 12, which was about buying your first pharmacy robot and planning for your second, which was a great interview I had with uh, Greg Kadoran from the Blooms, the chemist pharmacy group. So I think those two are going to hold the number one ranking as we head through, uh, but certainly love to know what you've taken out of this past year and what you'd like to see moving forward. I had the uh, great pleasure of receiving a listener question, which unfortunately they would like to remain anonymous, which is fine. And Take that as a lesson to all of you guys as well. You can send me anonymous questions. I do like to highlight you, and particularly if you want to mention your pharmacy, I'm very happy to give that a plug on the show if you'd like it. Uh, But if you don't want to put your name to it, that is perfectly fine. And the question was, how do you determine what interviewees to have on the show? Very good question. I I get that quite a bit. And what it actually comes back to, and I may have answered this in a previous episode, it's starting to ring a bit of a bell or a deja vu, but nonetheless, the way the guests get picked up and they get chosen is in feedback from you. So what that means is that if you've asked a particular question or you've isolated a particular problem, now I could go ahead and answer that myself and I I, I dare say there's not too many pharmacy questions that will stump me, but there are some great industry experts out there that know it a lot better than I do. And it's my job then to go source them, have a chat to them, say, would you like to help this motivated bunch of pharmacy owners that I happen to talk to every single week? And a lot of them will just say, absolutely fantastic, love to do it, Rob, and they'll come on the show. And of course, some of the guests that have come on the show, particularly more recently, the last one that was recommended to me, was Ivan Frangi in episode 42, which we talked about creating magical moments in your pharmacy. 
and he was recommended by Sue Muller from the pharmaceutical locum company. And um, certainly I take all of those requests on board. All I would ask, if you do want to suggest someone to come on the show, just let me know why you'd like them to come on the show and what you'd like them, what you'd like to learn from them. And that way I can do a little bit more research and I can make sure that you get really good content from them and it really answers your problems. So feel free to shoot those through. Had a great week this week. How about you? Um, it's been brilliant for me this week. I had the pleasure of having entertaining 55 motivated pharmacy owners like you on a webinar. And you might have actually been on that call as well. So g'day if you did come on the webinar and we shared lunch together on Tuesday, which was of course around creating our best year ever. It was the culmination of the summer business series and also the five prescriptions for a stress-free holiday. And all of those that downloaded it, um, and we had 111 all together and we had 55 on the webinar, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um, You were able to attend that webinar free of charge and get a lot of value out of it. We reviewed the five prescriptions, we went through the summer business series, and, and, and certainly a lot of feedback came out of it is that they've set some really strong goals for 2015 and they're really looking forward to creating best year ever. Now, I also wanted to mention that to you as well because I, it's, I, I felt that I wanted to offer it to more people, but Again, I only reward people who take action. And um, ultimately, all of those 55 motivated pharmacy owners took action and joined me for lunch on the webinar. And of course, we had a few others that listened to the recording afterwards as well. But what I did for all those that attended the webinar was offer what what was my ultimate accountability package. Now, I only mention that to you because I feel that it's something that if more pharmacy owners would like it, I'm happy to have a chat about it for 2016. I'm not gonna be opening up further capacity for this year because I've set myself and created time in my schedule to look after 10 motivated pharmacy owners, but also because we happen to have two waitlist spots at the moment. There are two pharmacy owners considering whether they go ahead with it. And if any of you listening would like to go ahead with it, you may get get in. If these pharmacy owners don't want to go ahead, you'll be first up on deck. And what it is, is an accountability package. So we all talk about goals that we want to set every year. And we probably do set them on January 1. But by the time we roll around to February, sometimes the motivation goes away. And the reason for that is that the goals and the enthusiasm for those goals live entirely within ourselves. We often don't share them with our families, our team, and people around us, so that when it gets to February and the motivation goes down, if we haven't shared them, we think, well, we're not gonna lose too much because no one knows about them. But in reality, we need to actually plan to have our best year ever. I spoke about it with a metaphor in the webinar and often in the videos throughout the five prescriptions for a stress-free holiday, which mind you, if you this is the first time you've heard of this, head across to robertstar.com forward slash stress-free holiday. If you've been away for a couple of months and you're just tuning back in, that's what you want to listen to. And the metaphor around it was your car. Now, often we don't service our cars as often as we should, probably as often as we don't take a holiday as often as we should. But the metaphor of the car is that if your car's a bit banged out of shape, you're not going to leave it in a car park for two weeks and hope it tunes itself up, fills itself up with gas, 
and that you'll be able to come back to your car good as new. It doesn't work like that. Our bodies aren't like that. We're in the middle of February now, so I dare say if you if you were taking a holiday, you've probably already taken it. I hope it was a restful one, and I hope you're able to you know, de-stress and also disconnect from your pharmacy, but hopefully you haven't come back to a big mountain of challenges ahead of you um, and that you were able to solve perhaps some of those uh, through some pre-holiday chats which we spoke about in the five prescriptions. But with your business, you've got a little bit of time. If you're not a coastal pharmacy, I believe you've probably got a couple of weeks to really get your planning in place before it really picks up for flu season. And often, you know, we might be looking at in 12 months time running flu vaccine clinics in our pharmacies. So we need to really start to think about what we're going to do in that space. And I talk a lot about on this show, and I digress a little bit because I'm so passionate about it, is that we're too transactional and we're just thinking about supplying the flu vaccine, supplying the symptomatic treatment, but not really thinking about what comes before, what comes after. And I think really not following our patients up. I think a lot of them would take a lot of value out of their pharmacist calling them up or even automating an SMS to go through health notes or any of the other SMS marketing platforms that you may have in your pharmacy, just to say, how are you going? If you're not going well, please give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. I think it would just really add a lot to our business as well. But we've got a plan for it. And we've got a little bit of time. So I'd employ you to head across to robertstar.com forward slash best year ever. You'll get the webinar replay, uh, which is what we did on Tuesday. So if you still haven't gotten around to planning, grab the webinar, spend the hour, and you're able to think about things that you can plan for your best year ever. But if you'd like some help and the two spots are still available, I might be able to work with you as well. So head across there and I look forward to hearing your feedback on that as well. So we're about to head into the future. How do we feel about that? I think a lot of us feel that we're at the crossroads right now and the future doesn't look too great for pharmacy. Well, boy, can I tell you that by the end of this interview, I think opportunity will literally be dripping from the ceiling and our ears and eyes will be wide open to the great possibilities of pharmacy by the time we get to 2050, which is a really exciting time. Our interview today is with Morris Mizalowski. He's a world-renowned business futurist, a global and international media commentator, and a well-sought-after presenter who presented at TEDx in 2013 on the topic of unlearning the future, which drew critical acclaim. He believes that in 2020, 60% of the world's tasks in the workforce haven't been invented. And by 2025, that 60% of the top 500 on the Forbes list will simply not be around any longer. Morris Mizalowski, welcome to the Transformation Show. It is great to be here. Oh, fantastic, Morris. And uh, I've, I've long wanted to have you on this show. And uh, I know that our listeners, when I've been talking to them in the last few weeks about playing a bigger game this year, it's really not about this year. It's about uh, the remarkable future that we're working towards. And that is your role. And um, I, I look forward to exploring that with you. As do I. And you're absolutely right. Look, the future starts right here. It starts this second it's not some mythical spot. It, there's no X that marks it. There's no particular piece of knowledge or activity that we need to do which sparks it off or starts it. 
it starts right here in our conversation. It's hopefully what your listeners will take out of the comments, hopefully reading between the lines and seeing something that they can start to do, small stuff. The future is really, to me, about incremental change. It's about looking at small things that they can do, and all of those small things will take them in a direction, hopefully, that they choose they want to go in. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And Morris, we always like starting our our chats on this show with a little bit of a story. And uh, I suppose a lot of our listeners will be wondering, well, how, how does how does one become a futurist, and why does one choose to you know choose that career path? And how did you get started in it? And um, you know, why is, why do you find it still continually fascinating? I don't know whether I choose it. I think it chose me in many ways. So my life history is for the last it's actually thirty four years this month. I started off as a business strategist, and to me, business strategy is boring when it has an historical perspective of just numbers. It needs to be grounded in what is likely to happen tomorrow. It's not about predictions, because no one can predict, but we can all hypothesize. We can all look at what are some of the things ahead and begin to postulate of whether those things are relevant, how they might change our world, and then start to move, if, we have, if we're brave enough, ahead of the curve or at the very least be ready when the curve starts to move to do it. So as a futurist, what I do for clients around the globe is to help them to understand the likelihood of what's ahead. I look at technology, I look at culture, I look specifically at innovation and my forte is around business and have worked with pharmacists for a long time. And for each of them, it's having a provocative conversation, kind of like the one I know we're going to have (laughs) in the next little while about what it's likely to be and making sure that they are in a mindset and a frame of thinking where they're willing to receive that sort of information and to guide their businesses step by step, slowly, some in market ways towards being ready for the marketplace, sometimes ahead, but often ready for the marketplace when the marketplace needs something from them. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And, you know, we're going to have a broad range of ages of listeners, as I know. Some some may be looking at, you know, what their pharmacy may look like in even 2050, 2040. You know, some may be just looking at 2015 right now and, um, you know, perhaps looking to get through the next round of PBS reform challenges that I know is coming our way. So I guess what one, of the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today specifically was your recent visit to to say yes and uh, we had Kathy Reid on a couple of weeks ago and we were exploring some of her observations through her Google Glass and uh, you know that's an interesting conversation in itself but um, you know what I guess for our listeners benefit you know why do you go to say yes and you know for, for a lot of us and it's certainly something I'd love to be getting to in the near future what is it like and, and you know what does it stand for and um, you know I guess, what, what, what have people taken out from 2015's version? So CES, which is the Consumer Electronics Show, is held annually in Las Vegas around the first week of January. It has 170,000 people that attend. It's one of the largest shows in the world and has many, many technology uh, providers there. So you've got everyone from the Samsungs, This year, a lot of uh, Mercedes were there, car automobiles, all kinds of bits and bobs. And what they're there for is to showcase what they think the future will be in a physical sense. So they will bring their products and showcase them. It's a huge event. Um, Unless you've seen it, it is impossible to say how huge it is. But I can only give you an indication that every day of the four days, 
I did around 18 kilometers of walking per day just to walk around the show and see what was there. It's phenomenal and it takes a full four days to be able to see it. So the reason I go there is I love to see the physicality of the things that I speak about and that I see in prototype and inside people's heads when we talk a year or two before the physical product ever comes about. And strangely for me, it's almost voyeuristic. I love to see the things displayed, but even more, I love to see the people that are there and how they engage and the light in their eyes or not about the products and the conversations they're having to gauge whether there's a marketplace need or appetite for them. So for me, it's really working in both of those spheres. Definitely hands-on, love to play with the gadgets, see them, and to be one of the first is a privilege, but also to observe the way people do engage with them to get a sense of whether they're going to be important or not. Mm, no, absolutely. And geez, well, 18 Ks of walking, no wonder wearable tech's on the, on the rise. And I wonder, did they have a, a leaderboard of who, uh, who, who tracked the most steps each day? They should have, but I can tell you for the first time ever, it became a conversation pit. So what, what people are doing now is obviously with their Fitbits or pieces of wearable device, which are bracelets or whatever else they're wearing that monitor their steps. It was very much part of a normalized conversation. And a year or two ago, not that I was there, but conversations around it were not that. I mean, people were not talking about how far they walked or how much they were breathing or what they ingested or anything like that. So in two years, I think it's really one year, but in two years it went from being a non-event, a non-conversation starter, to me being able to tell you how far I walked. What I found was the major thread for this CES, for me, in my words, was really about connectivity. It was fascinating to see how many devices are really starting to monitor humans through their digital trapdoor, in other words, inside their body, which is something we've never been able to do before. And to begin the conversation, and I think we're only at the embryonics of it, to begin the conversation to make sense out of what is being digitized, so how much you're breathing, what your blood pressure is, how far you're walking. And there was lots of talk. We're, I think we're still a couple of years away, but lots of talk about these individual devices being connected almost like an orchestra to give a really informed internal uh, view of your body and how you're doing in real time. Yeah, no, look, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I know that I think even last year you, 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 you quoted that um, by, I think it was about, about 2020 or 2030 that there was going to be about 50 billion worth of internet-connected devices, um, which I think translated to about nine devices for each person. So uh, you imagine where they're all going to go. <laughs> Well, yes, and what they're going to look like. So we need to remember in that, and, I, and that statement's still right. In fact, if anything, it's on the slight side. I heard a really interesting keynote by the head of Cisco talking about con connectivity, and obviously that's where they're headed, and the other people on the panel said it too. We are going to be connected by devices that we're not even aware of that we're wearing. That doesn't mean that they're not on us because... We, because somebody's put them there, we've put them there, but they'll be inside our clothing, inside our shoes. They'll be part of a natural thing that we wear or have on us, and they'll have the ability to be switched on. So if you think about nine devices, for most people, they'll say, well, that's never going to happen. I can't hold nine mobile phones. But in fact, I don't even think we'll have a mobile phone by the time we get to 2020, 2025 as our primary communication tool. We'll have these little devices sewn in, uh, welded in just part of whatever it is that we carry around. Mm. 
Yeah, no, it, it, is, it is fascinating. And there was one trend that um, Kathy and I was, were exploring around the ability that what we're trying to do is consolidate devices into one device and how much our smartphone can replace all of these additional devices. And that's something we've spoken about a lot on this show last year. But that there's actually a reversing trend in that people are looking for other ways to do it. And that may well be, um, as the example we spoke about, was implanting a, a device under the skin to monitor your blood glucose reading and that would communicate back with your um, iPhone as opposed to you having to carry an additional glucometer around or for that to just mould into your phone? I don't think there's any probability about it. I think it's a certainty. So we will see those kinds of devices. We saw last year in prototype uh, a, a contact lens that supposedly does something similar. Now, I'm not concerned about whether it's a contact lens or whether it's something we implant in the body because both of those are possible. But the reality is that we will be ever more connected to this digital world and it will collect devices on us. The only thing that I would say that would be different from what you've said is I don't think the iPhone or any phone will be relevant in that mm. conversation in the next five to ten years. We will most probably not centralise it back to one device very much at all. We will have something that will give us readings or information that will turn all of this data into knowledge and then we as human beings will turn that into wisdom. And to me, that's the role of the pharmacist. I think this, this central bit that we talk about shouldn't be talked about as being an iPhone or a piece of technology. Hmm. It should be talked about as a human being. And in the, in the context of our conversation, that human being should be the pharmacist. Oh, look, absolutely. And, you know, I talk about so much about our pharmacist becoming a trusted advisor and we've never lived in an age where there's more health information available. The days of having to go to the doctor or go to the pharmacist to find out the knowledge for them to get out their textbooks that only they had access to or only lived in medical libraries is gone. And they're walking into our pharmacies armed with these things, asking us, what does that mean? Does that work for me? Does that work for, for my daughter? How is it something that's appropriate and you know that's where we're having to filter um, that information and I, I, I very much see as, as no doubt we'll talk about the the data trends and the information that we're going to get from these health devices in a way we've got to become better analysts of that um, as we already do for you know blood glucometers. I think that we pharmacists need to get out of the mindset of being transactionary one of the things I lament as an outsider is I think the industry for the last 20, 30 years has concentrated too much on being a retailer and very much about the transaction. Now, I understand return on investment, I understand bottom line, all of those things are pragmatic, they're purposeful, they're useful, there's no issue around that. But what a pharmacist used to be, when I look back at it through romantic eyes, was my trusted advisor. It was somebody, it was my first port of call when something was wrong and I couldn't even verbalise or understand what it was, but I had some intuition, inkling, some physicality about my body telling me something was wrong. The first place I went was my pharmacist. I don't see any difference from this wearable technology today to being what I did 30 years ago, which is I've got a whole lot of stuff that I'm not really making good sense out of, but I know it's something that's important for me to understand. Help me. Help me. Help me turn all this data into knowledge. And then the knowledge, which is what I bring to you, is the wisdom that you'll bring to me. Tell me what it all means. Mm. And ever more, that's what we need. I think every business on the planet, and I mean every single business, whether it's product or service, whether it's widgets or whatever else, the only thing that we're going to be selling from here on in is wisdom. Mm. We 
we're drowning in data. And knowledge is not all that difficult to get either with a couple of keystrokes. But wisdom, really human attached wisdom, is so difficult to get, and especially from a trusted advisor. And if ever there was anybody who could perform that role, it's a pharmacist. So, guys, you've got to get back to it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for our listeners who weren't, weren't aware, Morris did a fantastic uh, TED talk, for which for all of us is the panacea of spreading your ideas in 2013 on unlearning the future. And there was one quote I took out of that, which was uh, listening to yesterday, but speaking to tomorrow. And uh, we spoke about earlier last year about a pharmacist's role in the 1800s, just after I'd uh, visited Sovereign Hill with my family, and they've got a, a model antique pharmacy there and the one thing you notice is that there were no manufacturers there were no brands there was no marketing the pharmacist had to get very good at listening uh, and everything in their pharmacies was related to what their community told them that they needed to and they only ever got that by listening it wasn't trying to replicate the same format 160 times around around the country because you know the communication certainly wasn't there but the capability wasn't but at the end of the day, it was that community hub. That's why the soda fountains in America were the social hub of the community because people like talking to the pharmacist. And we've got to go back to it. It's really back to the future. I had to use that corny phrase. And I don't just say for pharmacists. I think for all service providers. But pharmacists have this unique opportunity now. We're at the crossroads where we are moving from a reparatory phase, where most of our medicine for the last 50 years, maybe a bit longer, has been about waiting for our body to break down and then seeking help for it. I truly think we've moved into a watershed moment, which is all about wellness. Increasingly around us, people are wearing these devices. And if they're not, let's not get hung up on the technology. Culturally, we're being told that we need to take better care of ourselves. Ten years ago, somebody running on the street, you would have asked, what are they running away from? Uh, People weren't into vitamins, good or bad about that argument, but they weren't talking about that as much. People are now more attuned than ever into looking after their bodies and making sure that they can sustain themselves in wellness. This is a conversation pharmacists need to get in the middle of. People are coming to them, even if they're unaware of it, and saying, help me. Help me to understand what I can do to make sure my body doesn't break down, let alone talk to me when it does. And you're right. Again, that retail notion that we have is something only that we started in Australia from the 60s. In the 60s in Australia, brands became important because we moved away from strip shopping centres into malls, into supermarkets. And the only way that we could get people to buy things was by a name that we taught them to associate with some sort of worth. But before then, the pharmacist existed in the strip shopping centre She or he was a vital cog. We didn't care, as you said, about the brand. We went in there to have a conversation, to make sure that we understood what it was that we needed to do and where appropriate to be sent to the right person to move that process along. Again, I know I've said it a few times, but I think this is the mantra for this conversation. We have to get back to the core of what we do and it's not pushing stuff. That's the end result. It's not the core of it. Look, absolutely, and and as we've seen that reemergence of the compounding pharmacy, um, you know, America, you know, probably moved back into that area first uh, with the beginnings of PCCA, and now that's come across to PCCA Australia and other other agents, and 
and also you know what we're now seeing is a, is, is a very strong movement I think it was even on uh, one of the major current affair programs only recently of pharmacogenomics in actually being able to understand why certain medicines don't work for us the way we thought they would um, and you know again like we say it's, it's really bringing it back to the individual person and the ability for us to customize a solution rather than try to you know give everyone the exact same dose in the same package and isn't that the role of a pharmacist yeah it absolutely was I, I did the keynote opening for pcca last year and i spoke to them about the notion of compounding pharmacy now this isn't a notion of either being better or worse it's a notion of a changing culture and also a changing medicine landscape and that is exactly down the road that you've said that we are now at a we are now at a point where we believe that certainly generic medicine is important. We will continue to have that. But increasingly, we can look at the individual and say maybe she or he doesn't need 20 milligrams of this. Maybe they need 6 milligrams of that mixed with something else. And we're at, a, we're at a point where we could always do it by compounding pharmacy, of course. But technology now lets us do it in all sorts of interesting ways. And I believe moving forward, the pharmacy of the future will have a huge and if I use the word compounding, we seem to be too strict on what it means, but a huge personalization about it in the conversation, in the end product, in the way it helps people to monitor. So I think compounding pharmacy in its notion of how it sets about interacting with its patients is part of a model that we need to embrace moving forward. Yeah, no, look, ab absolutely. And, you know, as all, all of us as uh, pharmacists, uh, you know, we know that the dosages that get prepared in the manufactured um, formats um, do have a, a degree of variability unless it's a drug of narrow therapeutic index where if it's slightly more than 1% off what it should be, um, it might likely kill someone. But every other one, you know, may have a 5 or 10% error rate. Um, and, uh, you know, I think with Kathy, we spoke about adaptive medicine, which, which is, again, is another thing to obviously be able to have perhaps even a device that we have inside us that can measure the dose response and and, uh, make the appropriate adjustment. Is that something that's crossed you recently? Yeah, absolutely. And we will have that. I think we're even going to go further. I think that we will, within a short space of time, be able to model what that medicine is likely to do for us before we actually take it. So we will be able to use a digital sense of ourselves and to put that script into our body digitally before it's physically put in and monitor what it does and when that is appropriate, when that's right, then to go into the physical application of it. And I believe that sort of thing is going to be common within 10, 15 years. We are going to move so fast now in the terms of history. It'll take us 5, 10, 15 years, but in the terms of history, we're going to move so fast from what we now do and think is ordinary to what we will be doing and thinking is ordinary by the time we get to about 2030. Mm, no, re really interesting. And there was another episode I did last year with uh, Luke Fitzgerald from MPS Australia. And one of the things they were looking at was uh, the concept of digestible tech in that, uh, you know, you, you'll swallow a tablet that can give you a response um, <laughs> as to what it's actually done, where it's lodged and give feedback to um, the medical practitioners and other people that are involved in your healthcare team as to whether or not it's giving you an effective response. Um, relief or whether it's actually doing what it's intended to yeah and do that in real time so i refer to that as an ecosystem and i think the model's absolutely where we're headed 
that what we will have is a huge change where the patient, the customer, is really at the centre. We've talked about it for years, but we never really meant it. What we do know now is that with all of this digital connectivity and the cultural shift, the, the patient will bring in information, either physically or digitally, and as part of an ecosystem, which means that they allow at certain times other people digital access to the information. It might be their doctor, it might be their physiotherapist, but it certainly should be their pharmacist. And what you will do is monitor them ongoing. And I don't mean you'll sit there at a screen looking at what they're doing, mm. but you will have indications on your technology systems that will tell you that Morris or Rob is at this moment doing something, having something, ingesting something that's not right for them, and you'll be able to intervene digitally to make some assessment, some comment, and maybe to go further. And that will be a what I call a flagged system. So when something untoward comes, you will be made aware of it by your technology and you will intervene. And that model, I think, is the one that we're going to see more and more of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and even if we come back to, I guess, where we are right now in terms of our healthcare professional team having the ability to let us know <clears throat> whether or not we, we're doing the right things or comment on recent things that are happening. And the, the most obvious way at the moment that we're looking at that is through the electronic health record, which, you know, it's probably still hasn't been completely decided upon whether it was going to go to the... Uh, it was talked about last year of going, changing from an opt-in to an opt-out model uh, where patients could determine um, whether they'd like certain parts of their record available for different practitioners and therefore it may be a censored record going around but it nonetheless comes back to that issue of trust and that patients in the end are going to have to trust the healthcare team around them um, not only with the information but also with the fact that they may be able to intervene and give them some guidance before they actually notice a symptom. And that I think is where we're headed. The other thing I'd say with e-record is that it is definitely something that we need to try and achieve, but I believe we're actually going to find a disruptor from outside the industry that achieves it far sooner. We will find some piece of technology, some provider, something, which patients self-select and use as their central repository for all of their health data, and they will be sharing that out with a whole lot of people in their ecosystem. So if we're not careful... I think that we will have this disruptor, and this disruptor, I think, is somebody that already exists. It may not be Google, but Google is playing heavily in this space. It'll definitely be somebody else, somewhere else. And it has to be because of the amount of information that's being generated now in the very, very early days of these wearables. People are going to, at some point, wake up and say, I've got a whole lot of data, but it's absolutely useless. Mm. How do I start knitting it together and making sense out of it? And I've got now a year, two years, three years, four years of longitudinal research on me every second of my day. What do I start to do to make sense and purpose out of this? How do I share it with my health providers? And how do I stop telling the same story over and over again to different people? And in, in an anecdotal way where they're trying to interpret what I'm saying, I don't have the language or understanding that really makes sense to you guys. You've got to use your best effort and listening skills to make sense out of it. But digital empirical data doesn't need anecdotal conversation. It just is. I mean, it's there. It's ready to be interpreted. Again, that's the wisdom that you'll bring 
to what I need to do to maintain my health and wellness. Yeah, and certainly we can see why, um, you know, Apple went into eye, eye health last year and they've got their health app that, you know, whenever you attach a new wearable device to your iPhone, it asks you, would you like the data to go to the health app? And, uh, you know, you could have multiple sources going in there. And I dare say that that's the most user-friendly interface of some health-related record that you could be using at the moment, whereas the uh, the government health records, um, you know, I think there was, you know, a lot of stats that went around last year of the limited number of people that not only I think the adoption rate and registration was okay but actually using it and actually having clinicians writing to it was just so slow so yeah, I think you're right and you know certainly I keep hearing about the amount of money that Google keep putting into health ventures and um, you know they're certainly not going to leave that opportunity untapped. One of the greatest growth sectors in venture capital, those people that are looking to invest funds to make more money, obviously, to find companies, is around this notion of health and wellness. And the record one is just a byproduct. It's a necessary byproduct. Somebody will crack it. The other thing that concerns me about the e-records, and that's not to say it's a bad thing, because I think it's a noble quest, is that it's an outside-in meaning that it's up to other people to obtain and contain and share my information. It's not up to me. And sometimes I don't even have access to it. Now, I know there's a pro and a con to that, and I get that. At times, it may be better for me not to be aware or for there to be some blanket uh, information about the scripts I'm taking, how many pharmacists I've been to. I get that argument, and that makes sense. But in many ways, these e-records exclude me. And, the inf- and what we're seeing now in technology is all about inclusion. And that's the other reason I'm not sure that it will work this, the way that many people want it to work. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, I, I agree. And I think it will be governed and regulated by the level of trust that uh, the individual patients actually have in the technology. Uh, you know, I think as a, as a society, we've come a long way in that we're very willing to do our banking over a smartphone device, irrespective of what kind of unstable network or unsafe network we may be on. And, um, you know, it's just, that's probably going to be the next step in that, uh, you know, we've trusted the internet world with our finances, our health is uh, probably the next barrier for most people to cross. I think so. And these things should not be seen as mutually exclusive. They are, in fact, working in tandem. One, which is the e-record side, to me, is an historical sense. It's kind of like our taxes. It's keeping record of what we've done, where we've been, all those types of things. But what we're talking about is marrying that up with the other side, which is the futurist side, really. And that's all of the internal digitization of who I am, what I've done, where I've been, what I've ingested, all those things. And that's real-time information that we've not had before and the e-records are not seeking to keep. So they're not mutually exclusive. I think they could both work beautifully in tandem and we need to develop them. But one's being developed by a government and a system and the other one is organically being grown by the patients and people that are walking into our pharmacies. And as pharmacists, we need to remember that e-records are important, need to be involved. But people are walking in with information and data that we could be using Mm. to do the job that we, or you as pharmacists, do so well. And I'm still lamenting the fact that many, most pharmacists are neglecting that side of it. You should be encouraging me where it's relevant to use these devices to share with you the information, the outcomes, the daily in and outs of my life so that you can continue the conversation in a more personalised way. 
these are not enemy devices. They are not things which are against what a pharmacist does. I think they are, in fact, a central part of it. And I've argued for a number of years that pharmacists need to be the centre of this. I want pharmacists to sell more of these devices. I want there to be more of a conversation between pharmacists and patients about what these devices can and can't do and to help people to understand what's relevant and not. The downside of it is that we are growing a community of cyberchondriacs. That it is now, and we've seen that with, our, with you and with our doctors, that people are Googling and believing they have all kinds of ailments and illnesses that they don't because they're misinterpreting data. Yep. That's human nature. They don't have enough to make a wise decision. Pharmacists now can help people to make wise decisions by saying that this is an appropriate wearable device, this is an appropriate app, this is an appropriate piece of technology that works in tandem with the physical things that I'm offering you, with the conversations and the stewardship that I want to offer you. All of these things are just merely parts of the puzzle. And that's what a pharmacist needs to do, is to give a holistic view of all of the things, the devices, the apps, the physicals, the scripts, the whatever else is available to them to help that person to move into a wellness phase and maintain their health and well-being. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And it has to be ingrained and you have to believe that, you know, that is that is part of the future. And, you know, it's all around us. We're seeing at the moment that all of the consumer electronic retailers have got huge dedicated spaces to health and wellness devices and fitness trackers. And, you know, in pharmacies, you would struggle. We, we spoke with Craig Simmons from iHealth last year, and we talked about the adoption rate that, you know, started to pick up last year. But, you know, we're talking about maybe a couple of shelves um, out of, you know, a, you know, a 500 square meter pharmacy, which is nothing. Um, and, you know, certainly these retailers, Harvey Norman, um, David Jones, Meyer, JB Hi-Fi, they don't have trusted health advisors on staff there to help you utilize it. Sure, they can sell them to you when they're doing a pretty good job of uh, flogging them. But at the end of the day, it probably ends up giving p patients and consumers more questions than they're actually after. And they can't go back there and answer them. And that's the point. Three years ago, I had conversations with many of the major retailers at a, at a few events and board tables. And I can tell you almost to a person, they thought that they would never be selling wearable devices. Makes no sense. Not part of my merchandising. Don't want to stock it or sell it. And now, as you've absolutely said, not only do they sell them, they catalogue them, they merchandise them. Many of them are even offering as giveaways or something to bring people into store. Now, the conversation here for our listeners should be that we are not talking about tech for tech's sake. I'm a futurist, but I believe in people more than I believe in gadgets. I'm talking about a significant cultural change where these devices, forget about the toys, but these devices become ordinary, that your patients and customers are walking in off the street and they have them already. They're not asking your permission to have them. They have them already. Society's decided that this is part of a world moving forward. We still have to work out how many, what they're good and bad for. We've not seen what they will be. We're in really early days. But the fight about them existing has already been won. They have their place on this planet. And we need to start working and cementing them into being something purposeful. And right now, I can tell you that most people that wear them after a few months of the honeymoon period wonder why they're wearing them. What purpose is this information for? It has a purpose. And the pharmacist needs to help them to understand what that purpose is. 
there is now a real window of opportunity for pharmacists to get into this space and help people not only to buy the right devices, which is a whole different retail side, but more importantly, to understand how to use them and to effectively interpret the information given to them. Yeah. It's such a fundamental role now, and we need to be up to that challenge. Well, the, the, the wellness movement's upon us, and uh, we know that, and um, you know, and, and that's only going to continue to grow as we become more patient-centred. But the way I see these wearable devices, and, and, and like you, Morris, I, I might be a big uh, techno freak, and I love my gadgets, but I think it's got the ability for our patients to learn more about themselves that they perhaps didn't know beforehand. And um, you know, it does raise a lot of those questions, and those questions need to be coming to pharmacists because we've got the ability to translate that in in amongst their other health conditions that may be going on it could be someone who's recovering from a recent heart attack and they they've started wearing a fitness tracker to track their progress in conjunction with exercise prescription and new medication and so forth and some of it may make no sense to them because they've just been bombarded with a new set of experiences but um, we do have the ability to, you know, provide those knowledgeable insights and wisdom, as you put it. And what else is the role of a pharmacist for? I keep coming back to it. I've been, I have been lambasted about it before. You are the most expensive pickers and packers on the planet. Hmm. Your role is not to take something off a shelf and give it to people. Now, I know that's a horrible way of saying it. But your role is to give wisdom. It is to attach something to that box or that script and help people to understand why and how they take it. And you see that so naturally. And I love that about pharmacists. So I, I'm questioning now why do so many rally against this next ability to help people to understand what it is they need to do when and where. And again, it's not about the tech. It's about understanding that you have people right now, today, this minute, walking into your pharmacy with these devices. Is it a part of the conversation you're having? Have you trained your staff to be able to understand what people are walking around with and to help your staff to have the conversation with their customers and their patients? Because they, the customers and patients, are more often than not now being freaked by what they're seeing, about how many steps or whatever else they're learning, but they don't know what it means. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it has a lot to do with belief and what the you know environment of retail and community pharmacy has looked like for so long in that we've just gotten used to it becoming you know a typical small business um, and we, it's seen its big challenges in the last 15 years. And you know I don't need to tell our listeners any more about the, these challenges, but the operational costs go up and it squeezes that bottom line. And we've responded to it by you know perhaps retracting services operate a number of pharmacists and all it does is is it just you know brings it cuts our knees off from actually having these conversations with our patients and we just need to inject that efficiency into our businesses so that we add an extra minute or two for every patient so that we can afford the time to have that conversation and uh, you know I think sometimes it's just that case of believing that there is a better future and a bigger role for us to play and you know in the primary healthcare space we're often that first point of call and our knowledge of you know all of the other allied health and gps around us we've got that ability to facilitate and coordinate a patient's care but ultimately don't give ourselves enough time to do it at the moment you have to find it the other thing that i'm hearing a lot from pharmacists over the last decade or so is how people now shop around how they don't stick to one pharmacy anymore 
And the reality is that you haven't given them a reason to do that. The reason I stuck around with my pharmacist for 20 or 30 years was wisdom. It wasn't product. It was wisdom. She or he knew who I was. They knew instinctively what I took and whether it was right or wrong for me, had conversations about family and knew things about me that were difficult for me to take somewhere else. These devices now offer those bridges into the community again. They are a way to start or restart or reconnect those conversations. And I'm not peddling again the wearable device, but it's the cultural shift. It's the wellness shift behind it. There is now the possibility for a pharmacist to reconnect and to stop people going to other pharmacies. Because as human beings, I can tell you on the other side of the counter, if you connect with me, if you truly understand who I am and what I do, then I'm not going to go anywhere else. I just can't. It doesn't make sense. And that's where wisdom comes into it, that human attachment. We're for far too long being too concentrating on data or knowledge, and we're just telling people what they could get anywhere else. Let's tell them things, show them things, explain things to them. They can't get anywhere else. And pharmacists can do it. And I said, I think 14 years ago at a conference, and again, got howled down because of it, that we need to get rid of those counters, those high counters that keep a pharmacist work as a barrier between us and them. That really doesn't serve us well. And it's not the physical barrier. I'm talking about the mental barrier that it creates. It creates an area where we're just dispensing. And as important as that is and as necessary as that is, there's another level that will keep customers coming back beyond that. And that physical counter, I think, often stops the conversation going any further. Yeah, and I think it's become quite humorous over the years. I think uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, said it best is, why does that pharmacist have to be two and a half feet higher than everyone else? I'm working with pills here. Come on. (laughs) Look, and and, and look, it's obviously had its place in its time. And we just need to believe that the times have changed and and there are different places for us us to be. And I I guess, you know, we've spoken a lot about wearable tech and fitness devices. And I guess it's also progressing down that health um, tech department of being able to actually monitor people's chronic health conditions as a result of a particular device that may not be even available yet. I know that um, Craig and I spoke about some of the pulse oximeters that are now available uh, to measure oxygen saturation. So if someone's got COPD or they're going to be climbing a big mountain, they've got a new device that can actually help them on that journey. But I know that you also... um, last year put out a very popular press release around doctors prescribing apps instead of pills. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about where, where do you think that's going, I guess, in the short term? Well, an app is a short term. An app, of course, is something we download onto our mobile device. The reason I want to talk about that was, again, the notion of how we are now moving to patient-centric, that what we need to do and what we're able to do for the first time is to gather information in real time. And the notion of using an app was not instead of, it was as well as, it was another tool in the arsenal for doctors and pharmacists and other people, is to say to them that up until this point, you've given me anecdotal information, which I think is relevant. You've told me about how, where and why, symptoms and other things. I've sent you out for some tests and they're terrific, but they're only a snapshot in time. And they are wonderful. There's nothing untoward or bad about them, but they're a snapshot in time. What I want to add into all of that wonderful rich data that we've always used is a real-time understanding of who you are, what you're doing, what you're eating, where you're walking, and your daily activities. And that's where these apps come in. An app 
used as a tool allows you to use all of that historical and moment in time information and add it add an extra layer of information about what's happening in real time about that person and that's why i'm really keen on doctors and other health providers using it as a tool and again as wearable devices and what we're saying to people behind all of this is that you are responsible for your health and wellness there is now there are now more things that you can do health diet all those things are imperative had that message for a long time continue to give it but there are other things that you as the patient can do now to understand what's happening and to take control of your life and that's the notion behind using an app an app for a script is to extend out that conversation bring in the ecosystem make everyone responsible for it and add the richness of real time information yeah yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, particularly in the past, you know, it could well have been that, um, you know, if you suffered from insomnia, your doctor would give you a sleep diary and say, talk about your sleep every, every, every morning when you wake up and write it down and bring it to me in two months time and we'll review everything. And now we've got devices that can be writing that information and measuring your lightness or heaviness of sleep and actually reporting it back the next day to the doctor. And if there is a very strong trend of something that's going on, it can be acted upon immediately as opposed to you know it being a historical conversation and anecdotal because it's my ability to interpret my sleep and how do i understand my sleep is against anybody else's and the perfect example also is the food diary which i've had to fill out many times in my life with the best of intent i lied in it and i don't mean that i that i lied because i left things out but you know that glass of water that thing that i had that whatever it was didn't really enter into the diary But now, with technology, I can keep a constant record of what I've eaten. I can take pictures of it. I can use other devices. I saw a really cool device last year, which is a container into which you put food and drink, and it measures itself. So it knows exactly what's in there. It knows its calories. It knows how and when you've ingested it. And it sends that information back to your ecosystem of other health devices. So it's it's an electronic diary of food intake. I've seen psychologists and psychiatrists use technology to be able to allow people to keep a a diary of what's happening in their lives or their anxiety, perhaps, is to take pictures or live video streaming of anxious moments and to use it for other purposes. So these things are additional tools from the things that we've done before, but they're purposeful and useful in the context in which they're in. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the sleep example I used there, there was a, a big story um, talking about that on a current affair program of the rise of the over-the-counter um, sleeping aids and different tablets that you can utilise, uh, which typically we'd always recommend at the minimum effective dose for the minimum amount of time. And people just tend to abuse that fact and uh, you know it falls out of whack out of their anxiety and you know that could be a very good conversation next time we have a patient come in who's asking for one of these uh, sleeping tablets um, is to actually have introduced the conversation of wearable tech and monitoring their sleep and um, you know perhaps being able to offer that wisdom around uh, some of their sleep patterns and perhaps solving a bigger problem. It absolutely is. And again, going back 10 years from now, that will be an ordinary conversation. I did a report two years ago now on the future of sleep for 2050. And I've worked with the three largest providers, bed manufacturers on the planet over this over the last two years or so. And I can tell you that the sleep 
sleep is changing in the way that we have it, where we have it and when and where and all those things. But the actual devices being the beds themselves will change over the next five to 10 years to include a lot of this information or to be able to collect a lot of this information. And I was intrigued at CES last month to actually visit with two providers that have built very specific apps and physical beds that monitor our health and wellness. And one of them is, has built a bed which I've spoken about but not seen the physical of, where the bed itself changes at every moment to allow you to sleep better. So it becomes firmer, softer, does all kinds of really interesting things and does it in real time. And this was not only a working prototype, it's available for sale. These things connect up to wearable devices, which again are part of a conversation that we should be having in our pharmacies. And as we've said many times already in this conversation, this is not a matter of the pharmacy, pharmacist generating the conversation. It's a matter of the pharmacist realising that the conversation already exists. Yeah. The patient has this information at their hand. They need to ask to be included in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's just about being helpful. It's being respectful of the fact that there's a co that you can join that conversation and help that patient find a better solution in a lot quicker time than what they can do in, you know, Googling everything or asking friends and so forth, which can get you so far to find the right person, which ultimately should be us at the end of the day. And, and Morris, um, I did want to talk to you about one of, the, one of the biggest statements that you have made of recent times, which was about the fourth industrial revolution and I know that has a lot to do with 3D printing as well and uh, we, Kathy and I spoke a little bit about it a couple of weeks ago but I wanted to explore it with you as to you know how far ahead of time do you think we are looking at 3D printing of our medicines? I think that we are about five years away. I've had a look at some compounding machines which are really almost 3D printers. In fact, I spoke about it last year at the conference and had a look at their new technology. So I don't think we're that far away. There are, there are many conversations being had around being able to 3D print scripts. Now, for me, this is an added tool within a pharmacy. I think that what we will have is what I always call a continuum. That is, we will continue to have our medicines as we do now, and they will suit a great majority of people. But we will be able to, as we've always wanted to, for those scripts and those purposes, be able to 3D print a specific medicine or application for one of our patients. And I think we're about five, ten years away from it. Five years away from seeing the first machines available, ten years away from it being so normal that our patients walk in expecting or knowing that that might be a part of their health regime. Yeah, and there was a, it was a great TED talk uh, that Lee Cronin did, I think it was in 2012, that, you know, he foretold that perhaps what we might be looking at is having 3D printers in our own homes with a miniature chemistry set inside where we literally have our practitioners download a blueprint of the uh, molecule that you, you makes up your medicine and that it was actually able to print each pill individually almost on a daily basis. Is that something that you can see going down the pathway? I can see the ability of technology to do it. We have a huge cultural and all kinds of other shifts that we need to make. I'm Even though technology can do it now, will be able to do it within the next five years, I'm not as keen for people to be able to print their own medicine in their own homes. There are particular circumstances where that may not be true, acute health, people that there will always be some people that will benefit more from being able to do that at home. But as a general rule, I think that we as a society 
should not be so quick to be to want to have that happen. And I know that sounds like the antithesis of a futurist speaking, mm. but because we can is not a good enough reason to be able to do it. Yeah. There are too many reasons, too many things, I think, in the hands of wrong people that we have to work through before I'm comfortable about saying that should be something that's part of a future. But technology-wise, absolutely. At CES, we saw so many 3D printers that printed everything, literally from shoes and clothes, from underwear, from chocolates to cakes to all kinds of things. As I said, I've seen the prototype for 3D printers for medicine. We can do it. I just think that we have to have a broader conversation about whether we should do it. Yeah, and look, I think in general mainstream, it's probably something that's going to be unnecessary. Um, but you know, as as you, as it often comes up in you know rural and remote areas where one struggles to have enough pharmacies located, and you know, we spoke about telehealth a couple of weeks ago as well, and that you know, surely it's better to be sitting one on one. But if you can't get a specialist or a GP to see someone who's in a remote and rural community, um, you know, there's going to be probably a place for it but you know it may be very very selective in how we, how it gets used and i think that's the key to it i don't think that our pharmacists listening to this should see it as anything but an additional tool in their pharmacy i don't see a time in the near to mid future where pharmacists will disappear because i'll be able to push a button on my printer at home and again if that's the way we see the world then we only see ourselves as transactionary yeah don't see ourselves as adding wisdom to anything. And even if that is the case, I still believe that we will need wisdom attached to being able to press that button. It should only be after a careful, considered conversation and the ability to understand that that thing that will print is right for the person that's going to take it. And that still should be in the role of the pharmacist. I say to all of my clients, let's not get too caught up in the way we do things now. Let's be more concerned about knowing what our end result is, what it is we want to achieve. Because technology, culture, thinking, all kinds of things evolve to make the doing of it different. And the other important phrase I use is that it's not better or worse. It's never better or worse. It's a matter of relevancy. Today we know and have different and we do and know have and we do have different things. The way a pharmacist operated in the 60s or 70s would be laughable today. That doesn't mean it was bad then. It was best practice. It was the best we know how to do. But today we do it differently. And that's what the conversation needs to be moving forward. What is it as an end product, an end service, an end result we have to achieve? And then let's look at the way things are changing and begin to slot in incrementally in small steps these new innovations. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And, and there's so many pharmacists at the moment who, you know, obviously worried about the scarcity of jobs and those in jobs are thinking that automation is going to replace them. But it's really, as we've been talking about, replacing a, an old transactionary role that will no, will no longer exist. And it's about being able to diversify and embrace the new possibilities that we have. And there are many, many of them moving forward. And Morris, I always like asking my guests, and I know that you'll probably have the best answer I hope for uh, from this particular question, which is that if time and resources was no barrier, you know, what what would you love to see invented? You know, and we'll frame it around pharmacy today. For me, I think it, we're almost starting to see it now. What I want to see invented is a place and time in which we truly understand what it is and who we are and what we need. The technology is an aid to all of these things, but my invention also comes back to people. 
I want us to evolve into a time and space where we are comfortable with that knowledge and wisdom, where what we do is best for us. And it sounds utopian, but it's, it's really not a different dream than I would have had 50, 60 or 100 or 400 years ago, that we have to take the best of who we are and what we know and fashion a way forward. And that, to me, is what I would invent tomorrow, is to not be overly excited about the technology and the toys, but to look at the cultural shifts ahead of us and to understand that as human beings who will live to 120, 150, that we are changing society and that we want to make society right for everybody, that there is a wellness across the planet. Again, maybe utopia, but to me, strangely enough, as a business futurist, that's the world I want to invent. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely love it. Morris, it's been absolutely a pleasure having you on today. Um, I know our listeners have gone all the way into the next 50 years and, you know, those who have been studying very closely could map out a lot of where their pharmacy could take them and perhaps some new challenges and opportunities, probably more so, that they'd be able to take with them moving forward. Look forward to following you as I do, and I know that there'll be some great things that are going to come up through 2015 that I'd love to uh, chat and share with you in the not-too-distant future. I look forward to it. And remember, everybody, it's incremental change. There's things you can do right now after listening to this that you can implement in your pharmacies that will already start to make changes. Not about big stuff yet. It's about small, small steps. Fantastic. Thanks, Morris. Thank you all. Well, as you probably noticed by now, most of our interviews tend to go somewhere between half an hour and 50 minutes, depending on how we're going. There's really no prescription to it. However, in our 50 minutes today, we've covered about 50 years of future possibility for pharmacy, which I just think is absolutely unbelievable that considering the fact of all the things that we're yet to see, all the technologies that haven't been invented yet, and what that might mean. There's a lot of pharmacists out there at the moment who are really questioning whether there's a future for them remaining in the profession. We've got low average sales and average wages coming through, the possibilities of automation and whether that's actually a threat or actually an opportunity. And I see it as such a fantastic opportunity. And there's some great learnings we've taken out for today. I'd love to know what your ones were. Um, I'd love you to leave a comment in the show notes and let me know. But here are my top three. So number one, and we've spoken about this many, many times, there's going to be a changing of the role and a changing of the guard of the type of pharmacist that we need to be to stay relevant and play a crucial role and embrace all the big opportunities that we have coming up. We're right smack in the middle of a patient-led health and wellness movement where it's all going to be about the patient and it's centric to them. And the more we can make it about them, the greater our levels of success as well. So what does that mean? It means we need to be, as Morris spoke about, and as we've done many times, less transactional. We need to go away from worrying about how our products are merchandised because they're so available everywhere, online, supermarkets, discount pharmacies, there's no distinguishing facts around it. And at the end of the day, if we're selling a product and we're not delivering something additional to that product that helps that patient achieve success with it, then we're really at the point where the lowest price will win. And it is at the moment. So we need to deliver value. And where we deliver value is with wisdom. As we've spoken about, we need to be that trusted advisor and the filter and translator from all of the huge amounts of information that we're seeing right now. 
Most of our patients don't understand that. They've never had to. As Morris spoke about, you know, people like him who isn't a pharmacist, they've, ha- they've never had to work out what does my blood pressure mean? What is sleeping enough? What is walking enough? What does that make do? What does it make sense? And if you read any articles that you might pull down from Google, it might be very relevant to the person that wrote it, but it's not relevant to the patient. So this is where we play such a big role. And as we spoke about with wearables, which we're going to get into in our second learning, it creates a great conversation and it gives us a great opportunity to actually give give valued insights and information around a piece of technology that's in its honeymoon phase at the moment. And that is our learning number two for today, is that wearable tech is a huge opportunity. It's time for you to pitch a tent and open up a wearable tech section in your pharmacy. If it's good enough for all the retailers out there of general merchandise, your David Jones, Meyer, JB Hi-Fi, good guys, none of them know a thing about health and never considered ever selling wearables until now, funnily enough. The honeymoon period's in, people want to see it, they're having conversations about how many steps how the quality of the sleep is impacting their lives, how their New Year's resolutions are going, and they've got data to support how they're going. But we're creating society, as Morris spoke about, of cyberchondriacs, people who get all this data that they've never had to deal with before and they don't know what to do with it. But as trusted healthcare professionals and a great understanding of what healthcare means for these patients, we understand their patient journey. It might be that they're just diagnosed with diabetes or they might even have had a big cardiac incident and they're having to change their lifestyle. They need to make sleep adjustments, exercise adjustments, and all these devices are giving them all this data that they don't know what to do with. There's a great example that we've covered off a lot in our pharmacies where we've had to interpret patterns of our patients' diabetes glucose readings. And we've had to work out as to what the best time of the day for them to dose themselves potentially with insulin or with the oral hypoglycemics, how we can utilize diet and other interventions to actually allow them to have a nice even spread of glucose readings. Well, that's just the tipping of the surface. There's a lot of those things that we can get hold of and there's going to be platforms available for us to follow our patients' journeys and hopefully follow the alerts and be able to give them wisdom of what they can do differently before they even need to ask for it, which will be a fantastic relationship for us to have. We've got e-health records that are obviously we're playing a big role in, in writing to them and accessing to them. But there's also huge amounts of data that people are now walking into our pharmacies with through the agency of Apple Health and also a lot of Google ventures that they're investing huge amounts of money into to get to capture all this data and actually translate it into something. And that's a great place for us as pharmacists to be pitching our tents. So get on top of that one. Learning number three is, and I quote a movie title, Back to the Future. All of the things that made pharmacies so special and so crucial to every community in the 1800s is coming back to us and we need to embrace it. We need to step away from the old mold of pharmacy that invented the two and a half foot step, that invented the cookie cutter approach where every pharmacy around the country had to look the same and had to stock the same kind of stuff. We need to go back to having those conversations. We need to have give each patient that personalized experience. There's personalized medicines. There's a huge... Um, $215 million announcement in the US at the moment where 
Barack Obama has, has sponsored a personalized medicine trial where they're going to be utilizing pharmacogenomics. And yet we've got a great exponent of that in Australia with gene effects. Now, that's a capability of us to really detail what are the personalized aspects of medicines and how can we do it for them. We can look at compounding. I know a lot of you already are looking at compounding and that seems to be growing, but there's some great technology that's coming our way very, very soon that's going to make that a whole lot easier and a whole lot easier to personalize the dosages and the formats for each patient without it being a hugely manual process. And of course, 3D printing, which will tie in with that as well. What does that mean um, for, where, for where we're going? We're, a, we're about to unearth a fourth industrial revolution. And again, as pharmacists, we need to be, again, as Morris has often spoken about, we need to listen to what we did in the past and take their best learnings, but we need to look at the opportunities moving forward and make sure we plan for it. And if we do that, we're going to have a fantastic future and I look forward to sharing it all with you. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Transformation Show. Episode 50, done and dusted. And thank you and a big virtual high five from me from being such a motivated and engaged listener group all the way through from episode one to episode 50. If you've stuck through, you've been brilliant, you've more than likely helped me in some way to make this show even better. And I look forward to making it even better for you as we move forward. And we do that by leaving comments and questions in the show notes or via social media or whatever way takes your fancy. Always love reading to them and responding to them. And I'll get back to you personally regarding them as well, as our guest today, Morris, would love to do for you as well. Hope you have a great week and I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Bye for now.